1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 10. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, if you were building a wall, if you were a stonemason, say, for example, you were a mason. I'm not a mason or a stonemason. Uh, what you do is you take stones, I'm trying to go slow for you, and you put them in the wall. But it's really important. Apparently, how you do that, you don't just stick stones up on the wall. You have to do it in a particular way. If you want the, the wall to look a particular way, you have to arrange the stones or the facade in a particular way. And not only that, when you put the stones into the wall, you also have to do it in reference to the other stones that are around them. You don't want too many small rocks together, and you want to mix them up nicely, and then the shapes and the patterns that are left... Uh, it takes some diligence to put the rocks in the right place so that the appearance looks right and that uh, the wall has the appearance you want and that everything fits. And, and what we discover here in 1 Peter chapter 2 is that God is doing a work of masonry in building his house and he's fitting each stone, each individual into the place that they need to be. And what we're called into by faith is to seek to know the Lord and to understand and find our place to find our place where God has appointed us and where we are fitted into the work he is doing in the body of believers and the work he is doing in the world around us. And he wants us to find our place in his house. He wants to fit us in a particular spot. And he wants us to pay attention to why he does this. He wants us to pay attention to why it's important for us to find our place in the house of God and also to understand what benefit it brings us when we find our place in what God is doing. So let's just look at the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. If you still have your copy of Scripture open there, uh, we'll just remind ourselves of what it says. Look at verse 3. It says this, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, or since having been believed, since you believed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the first thing we want to say is this. We find our place in the house of God. We want to find our place because... God is good. Why do we want to find our place in the house of God? A very simple reason. It's because God is good. Jesus told a little story about this. It's in Matthew 18. You don't have to turn there. 
uh, unless you want to, it's Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter came up to Jesus, and he said, Hey, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? How many times should I forgive him? Seven times? Now, he's exaggerating. He's exaggerating uh, by a huge amount. Normally, they would only have to forgive once, twice, maybe three times. And then they could write the person off according to their current, the religious structure at the time. And Peter comes out with this enormous number. Should I forgive them seven times? I mean, look at me, Jesus. Pretty forgiving, aren't I? And Jesus replies this way. I don't say seven times, Peter. You should forgive them 77 times. So Peter comes out and exaggerates like he's some religious giant, some amazing forgiver. And Jesus basically says, you should never stop forgiving them. You should forgive them as long as they have sin to offer you. You should forgive them. And then he explains why, and this is the important part. This is, he tells this story. There is a king, and this king wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And there was a servant that was brought to him that owed him 10,000 talents, which is 20, 30, 40 years of work it might require to pay the king that amount of money. So if he worked 20 years and spent no money, meaning ate no food, lived in no house, had no family, just dedicated 100% of his pre-tax salary to paying the debt off, it would take him 20 or 30 years to pay it off. Basically an impossible debt to pay off. So this servant comes before him and the king says, he's not going to be able to pay it off. Tell you what, sell him, sell his wife, sell his kids, at least we'll recoup a little bit of the loss. And the servant throws himself on his face, on his knees in front of the king. He says, please king, have mercy on me. I'll, I'll pay it back. I'll figure out a way. And what does the king do? You've, you've heard this parable, right? The king just says, forget about it. Wipe the whole debt off. Just, just delete the debt. You owe nothing. This debt that would have taken you all of your life to pay off, I wipe it out. Go have a good day. Have a nice time. And so the servant left his master. That same servant goes out, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, basically one day's wages. And he says, hey, pay me back. And the, and the servant goes, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll get your money. I didn't realize you needed it so bad. I said, Simmer down. I just got to go to the ATM. I mean, that's what it was. He, he wasn't saying he wasn't going to pay. He said, listen, I don't have the cash on me. Let me run home, do a quick garage sale. I'll pay you the money. I'll have a, I'll have a Monday. Calm down, bro. That's not in the Greek, but we can assume it. But this wicked servant started strangling him and refused to let him go and had him thrown into prison. So how is the guy going to pay him now, right? The guy owes him a, a few hundred bucks, and he has him thrown into prison. Well, word gets back to the king that this has happened. And the king calls this uh, wicked servant into his presence. And this is what the king says to him. You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So we need to understand what Jesus is saying through this parable. He's saying we ought to offer forgiveness to others, not because that's what good Christians do, not because it's a nice thing to do, not because it, it, it will deliver you from bitterness and anger. He says, offer forgiveness to others because the small forgiveness you grant to them is insignificant compared to the forgiveness you have already received. He is saying you have been given uh, freedom from a debt of a billion dollars, so therefore forgive somebody the hundred bucks they owe you. He's simply doing math. 
forgive because so much has been given you. He is saying the economy of relationships in the body of Christ, the economy, the currency of relationships in the body of Christ is grace. The economy is grace. What this means is people come into your life and you meet them and it turns out they're human, which means they're irritating. Not all humans are irritating. Some are asleep. I, I shouldn't say that. I, I mean, I don't mean that, but you know what I mean. And, and what he is saying is, we extend grace to other people when they act like people because we have so much to spare. We offer grace to people because the economy of grace is God says you have a blank check, you can give away as much grace as you can because I will keep giving it to you. I will continue to overflow my grace to you and the way you fall short in your life and you just continue to pour that out onto the people around you. The economy of the body of Christ is grace. We find our place because God is this good. God is not good if you don't need his grace. If you are awesome sauce and you never make mistakes and you don't need grace, God is not good. Because God is offering grace to those who need it. Now, the fact is, all of us need it, just some of us don't see it as well. And we need God to open our eyes to how much grace we need. But God is a God of grace. He extends it to us so that we can extend it to others. The whole idea is for us to be a pipeline of grace in the body of Christ to one another. So we find our place in the house of God because of God's goodness in his grace. Look at what Psalms 34 says. Verses 4 through 10 say, I think it'll be up on the screen so you can read it uh, as I uh, read it. I sought the Lord and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, saint, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The lions, they suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. We find our place because God is good. Simply put, it's this. Every single person has abandoned God's ways in rebellion. And God simply comes to us while we were still in rebellion, and he offers his grace to us by saying, I will put my own son on the cross, that he will pay the price for all of your sin. So everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do is forgiven when we trust that what Jesus did was for us. Then Jesus goes into the grave, and three days later he comes out of the grave alive, raised from the dead, so that we can experience this new life with him forever. Forgiven? recipients of grace, and alive with him forever. And this is God's goodness to us. He says, taste and see, the Lord is good. While you are still sinners, Christ died for you and extends his grace to you. And so we find our place in the house of God because God was this gracious to us. Look at verse 1, 1 Peter 2. So, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Since God is this good, since God offers us this grace, 
we should therefore put away those things that destroy the community God has found us a place in. The communities, the economy of the community of believers is grace, and these are the things which will throw up roadblocks. They will destroy the relationships in the community of grace because they're the opposite of grace. Put away malice. What is malice? Somebody has done something wrong to me, and so now I don't like them. Now I hate them. I don't want them dead, but if they were to die, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I wouldn't murder them, but if they were crossing the crosswalk, I might text. Might be an accident. I mean, I put away that malice. Put away all deceit and all hypocrisy. These two go together. Deceit is this. I'm talking about this guy, and when I'm talking about this guy to, of course, another person, everything is just sort of spins him to the negative. Oh, yeah, he's a good father when he's home. Oh, yeah, sure, he makes a pretty good living, but, you know, he's in the office seven days a week. Yeah, everything's just a bit of a knife in the back. But when I'm talking about myself to somebody else, it's Captain Amazing. I don't want to say I'm amazing, but... If you were to come to that conclusion, I'm not going to stop you. And that um, hypocrisies, I'm going to spin something about myself to you in a way that makes me look a little better than I actually am. Deceit and hypocrisy is when I, is I'm going to tear down others when they're not around. I'm going to build myself up. And these are missiles that destroy the community of believers. Envy and slander. When I look at somebody else's life and the position that God has put them in, and I declare that God is not fair that he would give someone like that all that good stuff that will destroy the community of believers it destroys my heart of love and affection toward them because my presumption is i am better than them and i should be receiving what god has seen fit to give to them slander tearing somebody down when they're not around since god is good i'm going to put these things away Important thing to pay attention to. He didn't say they aren't applicable. He said, well, I'm not tearing the guy down. I'm just giving you information that's factually true. And God is saying, by grace, we're just going to put it away. We're not going to say you don't deserve to tear him down. We're not going to say it, it, what you're saying isn't true. We're just going to say because the economy of relationships in the body of Christ is grace, when we are talking and experience relationship with other people, it's going to be by grace. And we're going to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy. Matthew chapter 7. I think it's up on the screen. It says this. Matthew chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, well, it will be opened. Verse 9. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Okay, no, good. If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? I'm just checking for hands. No? Okay. Uh, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If we have been born into sin and have a fallen nature and have a halfway decent idea how to be nice to our kids, how much more than the holy and perfect God will he know how to be good to us? What he is saying is here, taste and see the Lord is good. Therefore, verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. 
Since God is good, put away malice, put away slander, put away deceit, put away hypocrisy, put away these relational missiles where we want to destroy people who haven't followed our rules and instead taste and see that the Lord is good and do unto others what Jesus would do unto them. Do unto others the way God would want to relate with another person who is struggling with sin. Whatever I would wish was done to me because of God's goodness, I will do unto them. But they don't deserve it, and neither do we. This is the economy of grace in the community of believers. We find our place because God is good, so we put away community destroyers. Okay, look at verse 2 of First uh, Peter Excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation since you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So since God is good, we put away community destroyers. Since God is good, we crave that which will bring us nourishment. Like a newborn baby craves milk because it provides nourishment. That's as a newborn babies would do. We ought to crave the nourishment God gives us that we would grow up into salvation. We should yearn for all those things God gives us which will make us more like Christ. And there's a, a number of these things. Certainly the word of God would be one of these things, but also things that sustain us and grow us up in our salvation is the word of God. It's prayer. It's getting together and singing songs about how awesome Jesus is. It's coming together as a community of believers and encouraging one another to keep the faith and stay strong in the Lord. It's coming together as a body of believers and serving one another with our spiritual gifts. It's going out into our community and serving our community in love and grace in the power of Christ. It's doing the work of the evangelist, sharing the good news of the gospel with the people around us who don't know Jesus. Since God is good, we crave all of these things. We ought to crave all of these things which will build us up into Christ, his word, his prayer singing together, coming together as a body of believers. He's saying we do these things not to have Christ. We do these things because Christ is that good. We do these things because we want to yearn like babies yearn for milk for the things which make us like him. The gospel tells us this. God is good enough to save sinners like us. So therefore, God is not religious duty or religious obligation. God is a delicious dessert. Another way of putting it that helps me think, God is, well, we had it this week, so it's on my mind, warm brownie, ice, vanilla ice cream. Are you with me? Hershey's syrup. Then some of that whipped cream action. And then you just get the biggest bowl you can find. So when I was done, there was none left for the family. I think Father's Day is more of a season than just a day. This big, is that a salad bowl? Mm-mm. No, it's, it's an ice cream bowl right up in here. You don't even scoop the ice cream out. You cut the carton off of it and just throw it in there. If you <laughs> Listen, I got skills. I'll tell you how this works. God, see, doesn't that sound good? Who wants a big steaming bowl of broccoli? I'm looking for hands. Well, now there's that one guy. He's like, I love broccoli. <laughs> Knock yourself out. And see, this is what we think. This is God. Okay, I've got to go to church. I've got to get my, my church on. And it's like going to the doctor and getting shots or reading our Bible. That's the same thing. I've got to do this because if I don't do this, God is going to be mean to me this week. And the, the portrait the Bible is trying to paint for us is not that. 
that is completely misunderstanding. What the Bible is trying to, the picture of the Bible is painting for us of God is he is so good that we are left with such a feeling of goodness and contentment from being with him, we then can go to the schlubs that are next to us and just give them a bunch of grace. Man, you are annoying. I'm not saying who it is. I'm just going to give you a bunch of grace because God has put up with me and I am also terribly annoying. That's something we have in common. We both are sinners. We both need grace. And I can extend to you grace you don't deserve because I ate a salad bowl of brownie ice cream God today. And so I'm squared away. I don't need to come at you with malice and deceit and scorn because God didn't come at me with those things. I can come at you with grace and love and it's undeserved. And when we do that, we experience the goodness of Christ together. God is delicious. God is not duty. Why don't we see that? Why do we miss how good, good God is? It's our flesh. It's the enemy. It's deception. Finding our place because God is good. Okay, next one. Finding our place of honor. Look at verses 4 through 8. Finding our place of honor. Now, the people who received this letter from Peter, these were folks who had been uh, moved out of their primary homes. They had to move because of their faith. Uh, it's hard to know exactly where they were, but likely they were uh, maybe kicked out of Rome under persecution or another part of a Roman uh, uh, rule. And now they were living in another place where they could survive, and they were experiencing cultural opposition. That is, the culture around them did not appreciate Christians. The culture around them did not think that the beliefs and their understanding of Jesus provided benefit to the culture. Instead, the culture around them believed that Christians were a detriment to the culture. So the grace that the body of Christ was offering the world around them was not returned. In fact, what we would say is this. They were shamed by the culture and no longer were honored in their culture. The culture did not look at the Christians at that time and say, oh, they're Christians, they're good people, they add something to the culture. Instead, they were shamed, saying, you are a detriment, a deficit in culture. We would prefer you to be gone. So the question is, when the culture turns and is no longer seeing God as a benefit, which happens 100% of the time, where then do the people of God find honor? And the fact is, it's in the house of God. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6 of First Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone, that is, Jesus is described here as a living stone who had been rejected by man, but in the sight of God you are chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're finding our place of honor being built up into the house of Christ. This story is told, I don't know if it's true, but it's still a cool story. A king was going to visit another king. He's actually going to visit Sparta. He's going to go visit the Spartan king. He had heard of the glories of Sparta, and he wanted to see them for, themselves, for himself. So he goes, and he visits the king, and, and he's given a tour of Sparta. They look around, they check it out. Wow, this, this place is pretty awesome. Wow, yeah, you guys are tough hombres. Finally, this visiting king says to the king of Sparta, you know, here's the thing. I was told of the glories and the insurmountability of the walls of Sparta. I have been told that these walls were insurmountable, impossible to get through. He says, you know, we've been walking all over the city. I haven't seen any walls. Where are these walls that I was told about? And so the Spartan king gestured 
to some soldiers who were standing off to his left. And he said, here are the Spartan walls. Each man is a brick. And no one will get past these walls. The walls of Sparta were the men, the, the, the soldiers who would repel any attack. And the king honored them by saying, this is exactly all we need. We need these living bricks will repel any attack on this city. We don't need walls of stone. And what Jesus is calling us to in faith, he's saying, I am going to take you and each person who puts their faith in Christ is fitted into the house of God to become a, a living house, the temple of God. And what he wants us to understand now, there is no other place of greater honor than to be fitted into the house of God himself. Somebody would come to Christ and say, where is this great temple? He would gesture to the people of God. He'd say, here is my temple, each person a brick. And there would be no greater honor because he is God of the universe. And so he's calling us to find our place of honor as members of the house of God. Jesus is the living stone, the point of reference, the foundation on which everything is based. And he's saying now as Christians, we are built upon this living stone as the house and temple of God. Look at verse 7 of 1 Peter 2. So the honor is for you who believe. When we put our faith in Christ, we are fitted into the house of God, and we are given what? Honor, privilege, presence. We have access to the king of the universe. We have a place that's fashioned primarily and only for us, and it is an honor and a privilege for us to be fitted into the house of God. We are living stones. We are the house of God, the temple of God itself. We don't have to go somewhere to find a temple. We don't have to go somewhere on pilgrimage to discover the place of God. Every believer has God in them by the Spirit. And the people of God gathered are the presence of God in this midst. Look at verse 6b. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, this is the end of verse 7, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So he's saying here, you have honor, one of two places. You can get honor out in the world, or you can have honor in the house of Christ. And they tend to be mutually exclusive. Honor, shame cultures, which are most cultures around the world, and certainly was true of this culture here, everybody wanted a place where they were connected and fit. Everybody wanted their place. I am the baker. I am the, the blacksmith. And I lead my family with honor, and I have a place in society. And people look to me with a certain level of respect, place based on my, where I fit. And it was critically important to the people of this time that they have a place of honor in their culture. But coming to Christ, that was completely decimated. The culture said, you have no honor in Christ, in culture. And so the people of that time would be saying, then where do we fit? Where is our honor to come from? And Christ is saying, your honor, your place of fit, comes from the house of Christ, from the temple I am building, where each one is a stone. Our house, our community, our connection is the place where we find honor. I tried to think of an example of this in American culture, and it was hard, but I finally thought of one, but this is a little bit dated for you younger people, and it's going to offend the people who understand it. So, But that's how I roll. What am I going to do? There was a show about what was called Cheers. Who's seen Cheers? Now raise your hand. You've seen Cheers. 
okay, here's how, here's how it is. This place was what? The place where everybody knows your name. Guy walks in, what does everybody yell? Norm! What do we call that? What is that? Honor. You have a place. Where did he go? Did he go to the same spot every time? Because he had a spot where he fit. That is what it's like to, be, to have honor. It's, it's to have a place where this is my spot and I fit in relational connection with others. And what we are called to is to find that fit in the living house of Christ. To find that honor there to the exclusion of where we might otherwise seek honor. Now the people of this time, they had the blessing that the culture generally had rejected them. And so they had no honor in culture. Most of us at this point, we don't have that. We have to make a decision. We can go out in the world and we can find honor. We can find a place to fit. We can find a place where people will recognize us and call out our name. And that's not bad. But the question is, where are we going to find our identity where we fit? And what we're being called into is saying, find your fit in the house of Christ. Why is that? 1 Kings chapter 10. Let me explain why that is the case. 1 Kings chapter 10. King Solomon was reigning and he had a visitor of uh, another royalty, the queen of Sheba. And she came and visited, and she looked at everything, gave, him a tour, gave her a tour and all this other thing. And here's what she had to say in 1 Kings chapter 6, sorry, 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. This is what the queen said to the king. The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the report until I came and my own eyes had seen it. Behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and your prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed is the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So the queen comes into the king's court and she says, I did not even know the half of it. How lucky are the guys who get to work where you are? How fortunate are your servants? So there's this one servant. I had, I'm, I'm imagining, but it certainly is the case. His job was to keep the birds from flying in the house. He had windows, it got open air, it'd get warm out. So, he got, so his job is to stand there all dressed up. And when a pigeon would come and land on the windowsill, his job is to shoo the pigeon away and then go back and stand in his corner. Maybe another guy, his only job was to open the doors when somebody was there. Another guy, he was there when King Solomon said he's thirsty, grab a drink of water, a cup of wine. Another guy whose only job is, is, is to make sure there's no dust on the floor. And their jobs are menial and meaningless. And what does the Queen of Sheba say? Essentially this, I wish I had his job. I wish I could be the sweeper guy in the court of King Solomon and just because that means I would get to be in here and never leave. And whenever he was talking, I would get to hear it. She says, the servants of King Solomon are so honored to have the opportunity to sit and do their menial tasks in the same room that he is. Here's what we have to understand how the Bible paints the picture. It says, Jesus is sitting on King David's throne which King Solomon was borrowing for a couple of minutes. Jesus now sits on King Solomon's throne. As it turns out, Jesus is a better king than Solomon could ever dreamed 
of being. Jesus' kingdom is a bigger kingdom. Jesus' glory is a glory that never fades. Jesus' kingdom is better than Solomon's will ever be. And all the Bible is asking us to do is square the math like the Queen of Sheba did. Where do we want to get our honor from? Standing in the court of King Jesus or pursuing it in other ways? And 1 Peter chapter 2 is just simply making a very simple argument. We have the opportunity to stand in the presence of Christ eternally. Why would we seek our honor and our identity in some other shallow and vacuous place? We will seek a house. We will seek a community. We will seek identity. We will seek honor to have a place where we fit, where everybody knows our name. Here's the question, where will it be? 1 Peter 2 calls us out to open the eyes of our heart and say, have that place be in the house of Christ. Fit it into his people, experience his glory day in and day out. We will see a house, seek a house. Where will it be? Find our place because God is good. Find our place of honor. Every man a brick, but not everybody fills the same spot. When we think of masonry as we're putting together this house, each one of us has a particular spot in that wall. We're not all the same shape. So God is building his house with us, and the place that he puts you and me is different than the place you would put somebody else. We have a particular spot where we fit. So finally, verses 9 and 10, finding our place to belong. Let, let me read verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter 2, second time. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Finding our place to belong. Now, in the 1980s, there was something we called the Miracle on Ice. Anybody heard of this hockey game? It was the Olympics, Miracle on Ice. The United States hockey team, mostly college uh, hockey players, were able to defeat the Russian team, which was mostly professional uh, hockey players. And it was a great uh, upset. And they talked to the coach about some of the techniques that he used uh, to uh, help the team be best positioned to win. Here's a couple of things that he did. First of all, players that had played together at their college, he kept on the same playing unit. He wanted them together because they knew how to play with each other. They had played with each other already. And he said, this will be, bring good team cohesion if guys who have already played together stay together and they're on the ice at the same time. Some of the guys hadn't played with each other, though, and so they weren't familiar. So what he did, did then is he put players from the same regions of the country together. As it turns out, they play hockey different in Michigan than they do in Vermont, I guess. I don't know. But if we put the people together regionally, they're going to have connection. His whole idea was to have cohesion among the players, a fluidity, a, a team that is so close. They can work together. He said, we may not be able to beat the Russians in their ability, but we can beat them with our teamwork. Finally, he said, it's really important that the team gets along together and they like each other. And his strategy for getting them to like each other was very simple. He said, I'm going to be so mean that every one of those players hates me. And then they will like each other because they all hate me so much. And so he was ruthless. He trained them vigorously. He worked them hard. He had no interest in making friends with them. He said, I want them to hate me so they have a common enemy, me, and they will get along together. His goal was to help them find their place where they fit precisely so on this team 
And that was their chance to beat the Russians. And he says to us, you are chosen. You are a people. You are a priesthood. You are my possession. I have chosen you to fit you together in a particular way for a particular purpose. Verse um, It's for this, to proclaim the excellencies of God, to proclaim that God is good. He wants us to put together, us together in such a way that we would proclaim to the culture around us God really is as good as he says he is. He calls us out of darkness into light by his mercy, it says in verse 9. He calls us out of death into life. He calls us out of condemnation into forgiveness. He calls us out of aloneness into belonging. He calls us out of isolation into relational connection with one another. We find our place to belong. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had no mercy, now you have mercy. He's quoting from Hosea chapter 1, verse 6. Hosea was told to marry a woman who was unfaithful. God told Hosea the prophet to marry a woman. Her name was Gomer. He said, marry this woman. She will be unfaithful to you. And so Hosea marries her. In verse 6, she conceived and bore a daughter to Hosea. And the Lord said to him, call your daughter's name no mercy. That's where the Cobra Kai started, if you're wondering. Boy, that, you don't get it? Karate Kid, no mercy. Oh, come on, stay with me, folks. It's Father's Day. I'm going old school. Okay. Okay, it's not where Cobra Kai started. Moving on. Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. I mean, what a terrible name. He, name your daughter no mercy, because I want the people of Israel to know, no more mercy for you. When the baby was weaned, she conceived a bore son, and the Lord said, Hosea, call your son not my people. Hey, not my people. Come here. You are not my people, God says. I have rejected you. I am not your God. And that sounds harsh and it sounds rude. Until we get down to Hosea chapter 2, this is what God says later. I will marry you in faithfulness. You will know me. In that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer from the heavens. The earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil. And I will give you a name, Jezreel. I will sow myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. So what he is saying is we have received the judgment of God because of our unfaithfulness. And God has then come to us and said, hey, no mercy and not my people. Here is my mercy. You are my people. I want you to come in and have a place to belong. A place fit precisely for you. I want to redeem you by the blood of my son Jesus into my family, and I want you to have a place of belonging. So he calls us to say, our place of belonging is Christ's house. Our purpose is Christ's glory by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Here's how one writer says it, and we'll close with this. The church is not primarily a social organization, but the new temple where the, trans, the transformed lives of believers are offered as a sacrifice to the glory of God. The significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. A couple of questions and we'll close with this. 
Christ has given you a place, have you found it? Christ has said, I have found and appointed for you a place. Have you found it? The way we find that place is by faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins. It's by saying, I admit, I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness. I want a place in Christ's house. When it comes to how we treat other believers in the body of Christ, the things we need to put off, malice and deceit, hypocrisy, here's my question. Would we inadvertently destroy the house that God has put together that is intended to bring us honor? Would we destroy the house God has bu- is building to bring us honor in Christ? Of course we would say no. Then let's put off malice. But you don't understand what they did. You're right, I don't. But let's put off malice. Let's put off deceit. Let's put off hypocrisy and slander and envy and instead negotiate the relationships in the body of Christ with the economy and currency of grace. Another thing to think about when it comes to putting off malice and deceit and hypocrisy, some of us here are saying, I don't feel that way about anybody. I don't feel angry at anybody. I don't have any bones to pick with anybody in the church. So here's another way of looking at it. Do we know people well enough to need to put off malice? Like, oh, yeah, I get along with everybody. How well do you know anybody? Because have you met these people? That's what you know, some of us are saying, right? How can you not have malice? Now, I'm not talking about you folks. I'm talking about the folks who couldn't make it this weekend. We know that. That's what so some of us do. Well, I don't. It's too hard to negotiate relationships with other people because other people act like uh, other people. So what I'm going to do is keep all of my relationships an inch and a half deep so I will never have to be forgiving. I will never have to put off malice. I will never have to offer grace because I'm not going to know anybody well enough to need to. And what the Bible calls us to do is jump in with both feet into the house where we have honor, where everybody knows our name, and we know we're doing it right when on a routine basis we're having to put off malice and deceit and slander. He said, well, what I'll do is look for a church where I don't have to do that. Let us know when you find it. Just, uh, no, honestly, if you find that church, first of all, don't join it. As one theologian said, you'll ruin it. (laughs) It doesn't exist. But what exists is the house of God where we have the opportunity to jump in with both feet. You will not believe what they said to me, right? And here's a bunch of grace to cover that. Do you know people well enough to need to put off malice and deceit and hypocrisy? If not, get to know some people till you need to. Then you know you're doing it right. Just two more questions. Where is your house of honor? Where do you say, because this exists, I have reason? Where is our house of honor? Just one quick scripture reference. Zechariah 4, chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it. Zechariah was a prophet after the people of Israel had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And the people of Babylon had destroyed Israel, had destroyed the temple, this beautiful temple Solomon had built. They had completely destroyed it. And they had ruined it. And they had come back to the temple and they had rebuilt it. They had rebuilt a a temple uh, to, to replace it. But this little temple they had built, some of them had seen Solomon's temple, and they looked at this new temple and said, good try? 
In fact, when they uh, ordained the temple, when they dedicated, there was such a loud wailing of crying that it was heard for miles around because people were crying at how pitiful this new temple looked. Because they had seen the old temple before it had been destroyed. And they saw this new temple and they were so embarrassed and so saddened by it. And said, this is embarrassing. And Zechariah writes to them and says this, Beware of despising the day of small things. Beware of the day of small things. Because one day these things will be revealed for what they actually are. See, right now, we're gathered together in this little country church in Medford, Oregon. We've got this 40-year-old building. Little church, little town. Who cares, right? Don't despise the day of small things. Finding our place of honor in honor in the house of Christ. One day, the curtain will be drawn back and the world, the world will look in and they will yearn and say, oh, if I could just be the guy that vacuums that carpet. That I might be for a moment in the place of such high honor. But we despise the day of small things and so we seek our honor in all these other places that are only temporary. And what Zechariah calls us to do is open our eyes to the true honor, the house of Christ, and not to despise the day of small things, but be distinctly moved to know that one day that honor will be consummated, the curtain will be drawn back and we'll say, oh, we are so fortunate to be in the house of God together. Where do we find our honor? Do we find it in our community? Do we find it in our family? Do we find it in our profession? Do we find it in our circle of influence? All of those things aren't necessarily wrong, but where do we find the foundation of who we are? The Bible calls us in faith to find that honor and that identity in the house of Christ. That we are so privileged to be able to stand in the presence of Christ and hear the words that come from his mouth. Last thing, how about fear? Do we fear losing honor in our culture? Every now and then our culture does some things that we, doesn't really line up with the scripture. I don't know if you've noticed. I'm not going to go into detail but every now and then, the culture gets a little sideways on some things, and Christians do what I call the Kermit the Frog routine. If you remember the Muppet Show, when things wouldn't go right, Kermit the Frog would run around with his arms over his head, freaking out. And that's what Christians do. A new law gets made, a new this, a new that, and the world, it turns out, is not a Christian world, and we're called out of the world into the body of Christ, and the world doesn't act like the church, and all of a sudden all the Christians in the world are Kermit the Frog Christians running around waving their heads over the head. What are we going to do? We've got to turn the world into the church. I don't want to tell you how the book ends. He, he wins. When we are filled with fear at the fact that our culture is the world and not Christ, it's simply because we fear losing our honor in the world. Wait, if the world is not the way I want it to be, that means they're not going to honor me. Where am I going to find my identity if I no longer fit out there? And the believers in 1 Peter was very simple. We don't care. We find where we fit in the body of Christ. That's where our honor is. We are going to call the culture into Christ. When we are filled with fear because the culture has abandoned Christ, or when we arm ourselves to fight the culture 
that's where we have discovered and our hearts are illuminated. That's where our honor is, and we don't want to lose it. Whereas if our identity and honor come from the body of Christ, the culture can do what they need to do, and we're going to keep proclaiming good news into it. Finding our place. Because God is good, finding our place of honor, and finding our place to belong.